Welcome to the Andy Social Podcast. If this is the first time you're listening, welcome. Hope you uh, enjoyed this episode and go back and listen to some of the other ones that I've done over the last several months. Things are going well, I like to think. Uh, we've uh, got up to 50-something-odd episodes. I don't even know what number this is going to be. I tend to lose track, and they all get recorded out of whack, and, and I'm starting to rhyme, so I'll stop with that. Awesome. Wow. First and foremost, um, a massive thank you for uh, a lot of the people that have been passing on feedback and suggestions about um, podcasts and uh, how I can push the podcast further and different platforms and whatnot. Um, as some of you guys would have seen, I started a little bit of a vlog on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's very horrible and rough as guts and a bit awkward and embarrassing, but uh, you got to start somewhere. And I don't have any exact grand plans for it, but I guess from my perspective, there's a lot of things coming up that uh, may be of interest to other people. And at the very least, it might be something interesting for me to look back on uh, years down the track. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to document some things along the way, different uh, things that are popping up, different thoughts and ideas and whatnot. And uh, instead of just recording them for myself, I'll put them out there and uh, people can can tune in and, and watch me uh, dribble on and, and, and uh, go on a few different adventures along the way. So that's over on my YouTube channel, which uh, oh, if you type in Andy Social Podcast, you'll find the channel. But um, I think it's youtube.com slash C slash Andy Dowling. A bit of a long, long and twisted one. Um, you can just go to andysocial.net um, and uh, all the links will be on there anyway. But, uh, yeah, that's something I've just started, so we'll see where that all goes. Um, but, uh, yeah, hopefully you guys will check it out and give me some feedback and comment and do all that interactive uh, internet social media stuff that uh, that does great things for me. Uh, definitely appreciate it. Uh, thanks for people that have been uh, giving reviews and ratings on iTunes. Very cool. Uh, if you've got a spare few minutes, it'd be absolutely amazing if you can do that. Uh, it does go a long way and uh, brings in a lot of new listeners, a lot of people that um, that would probably not be aware of my background and have just come into the, the podcast pretty fresh. So that's really cool to, to have a broadening audience and people from different backgrounds and different interests. And that's where I'm hoping that the podcast will continue to go in all those different directions, not just music. So, uh, and this episode, that may as well be a good enough tangent. I'll just stop. That'll rein me in a little bit. <laughs> this episode is a really, really good one. It is a lengthy one, as you'll see uh, when you look into your player of whatever you're listening to the podcast through. Uh, but it's one hell of a, a conversation and one that um, was a bit of a, a bit of a surprise. I had uh, a good friend. Uh, who you've heard on a previous episode, uh, hosts the Screwins and Co Breakfast Show, uh, put me in touch with Jake. And Jake Lloyd-Jones is a producer. Um, he's worked in uh, in broadcasting uh, on TV for, for a number of years. I'm probably completely mashing up his history here, um, but is um, and has uh, put together an amazing amount of documentaries and uh, been a part of some some amazing uh, TV programs as well over the years in Australia. And um, he's about to embark on a trip to the region of Kurdistan uh, in the Middle East. And um, 
to be honest, and I, I do make a mention in, in the episode, I had heard of the name Kurdistan, but I had no idea where exactly it was, what it was, and uh, I guess what the Kurds are all about. And uh, I did a bit of a crash course in uh, what is Kurdistan a few hours before my conversation with Jake, and I got a little bit of a taste of it, but uh, Jake did an absolutely amazing job of breaking it down on a on a reasonably high level and and just going through uh some of the some of the things to to educate of what Kurdistan's all about and and its part that it's playing uh in the war at the moment in that region of of the world and um it's it's very interesting and and I as I mentioned in, in our conversation it's something from my point of view where not so much that I haven't taken a great interest. Well, maybe that is the case. Maybe I haven't taken a great amount of interest, but um, a lot of the things that I'm exposed to are from you know, your usual media outlets and and then the odd, the odd buzz, uh, BuzzFeed, um, clickbait articles that pop up in Facebook feeds that are usually uh, leaning heavily on one-sided opinions and sometimes not terribly factual. And uh, you build up certain images of of different parts of the world and people and whatnot. And I like to think that for me personally, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open-minded, pretty balanced and whatnot. But uh, even for me, I, you know, there's a lot of things that, uh, that I have, have a view of even subconsciously that, um, that may not be the reality. And uh, this was really cool. It was a, it was a great, a great conversation with Jake. We spent majority of the, of the time speaking about the Kurds and, and his trip um, over there in October to, to film a documentary and what he's hoping to achieve and how that looks and, you know, the potential challenges uh, that, he's, that he's got ahead of him. And, and just talking about, I guess, you know, our culture and, and the perspectives that we've got here and, and the things that he's done locally as well to try and bring more awareness um, in our own backyard. Um, we touched on a little bit of uh, some of the, um, the other documentaries that he's been a part of, and I'll, I'll have all the links in, in the show notes that you guys can check out and uh, talk a bit about Australian politics as well. So for those people that are that, are that way inclined, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a really, really good, interesting uh, conversation. And for somebody like me that uh, that's over the last few years developed a bit more of an interest in it, but still very, uh, I'll use the 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 layman's term dumb <laughs> when it comes to it all. Um, I've, I, I'm certainly no way educated. If anything, I lean more on the side of ignorance uh, when it comes to politics. But uh, over the last few years, I've certainly tended to uh, care a lot more about uh, the decisions that I make. And I guess that's all a part of growing up. But uh, we, we spent a bit of time talking about that. And um, I think for people that uh, well, for the Australians anyway, and maybe some of the Americans that might be aware of it, but uh, Jake was uh, associate producer for a number of years on The Chasers War and Everything. That was on ABC TV in Australia and uh, ex- extremely successful show. And um, it was one was something that we touched on towards the end of the conversation. We, we were sort of watching the clock and running out a bit of time, but uh, he spends a little bit of time talking about the infamous motorcade uh, prank that, uh, that the guys uh, put together for the Apex Summit uh, about, uh, geez, eight or nine years ago now. I think it was quite, yeah, about nine years ago now. So um, uh, quite quite funny prank and i'll put a link uh to the youtube video of that as well for the people that haven't seen it before but anyway 
I am rambling on so much here, so I'm going to kick right into it. Um, really hope you enjoy it, and uh, I'll put links uh, for Jake as well. Please reach out and say hello to him and let him know what you think of the conversation and the work that he's been doing. I'm sure he really appreciate it. But uh, enough of me. Enjoy this conversation with Jake. Um, so we've got a, a mutual acquaintance. I can't – I've been uh, sworn to secrecy that I can never reveal his name, but uh, – for anybody that listens to my podcast will know it's the, the guy that runs uh, Screwins, Screwins & Co. Breakfast Show podcast. <laughs> so, um, And uh, he put me in touch with yourself and uh, talked you up. And, um, and then I've just been internet stalking you ever since. So I've just been um, going through and trying to learn as much as I can without uh, pressing you for too many questions. And I guess that's what uh, this is all about. So I've... Um, pulled out heaps of uh, interesting information from the internet. Some of it might not be true. Some of it may. <laughs> so we can dispel the, the, the false ones in there. Um, yeah. So I think that the first thing, and the first thing that you mentioned when we were introduced is what you're doing in October, and, and it's probably going to go off on a, on a huge tangent straight away, but I guess we'll kick straight into that. So you're off to Kurdistan in, in October? Yeah, that's what we're hoping to do. Um, we're just, at the moment, we're just doing research and um, there's a lot to learn about it. I, I didn't, starting from a point of not knowing very much about the Kurdish people. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've been, there's quite a few um, refugees and um, children of refugees in Sydney. Made friends with them and I go along to their events and stuff, um, which has been really fun. They're really nice people. Is that what was the I guess the introduction into into that whole world? Like as you mentioned, you you started um, spending time with with refugees here. Was there was there a mutual person or somebody that had sort of uh, I guess made you aware of this world, or was there anything in particular that sort of sparked it? Um, well, um, I mean, the, there's kind of two questions there like the the way I got in touch with them was just by looking up looking them up on the internet and Facebook and stuff and um, I, I saw that the Sydney Kurdish Youth Association was doing an event to commemorate Halabja which is um, was a terrible uh, gas attack by the Iraqis against the Kurdish people um, you people probably would remember it because it was it was put on TV mm. and they, they hit this village with um, like chemical weapons and um, so there were images that uh, came out of all these people who were trying to flee with their children and stuff. Um, and that's actually the first time I heard of the Kurds too um, when that happened. Um, and, and that was originally the Americans tried to blame it on Iran um, because they were backing Saddam at the time. Mm. And then... Um, after the fall of Saddam, I think it was uh, the Swedes or some Norwegian officers went in and, and found all the paperwork of the conversation between the American <laughs> intelligence agencies and the Iraqis about how to pin it on the Iranians, yeah. um, which, you know, was all very hypocritical and terrible. But anyway, they, they have a... Every year they they remember that day that that happened and um, they they light candles and stuff. And so I went along and, and made a little video for them and um, 
they put it on YouTube and they were very happy and they started inviting me to their parties and stuff and dinners and things. Um, Because, yeah, they're very hospitable people. Um, And I made some more videos for them. I think um, there's another dance night on the 23rd of July. Um, It's way out in the western suburbs, but... um, it's really fun. Like they, they all, the men all wear their like Peshmerga gorilla outfits, and the women wear these amazing Kurdish dresses, all covered in gold coins. These long medieval sleeves, and they dance in a circle. Right. So very photogenic. <laughs> um, yeah. So, <clears throat> but I think the reason I became more wanting to do a documentary about it was um, I started reading about. Uh, Rajava, which is the, the territory within Syria that the Kurds now hold. Um, so Kurdistan itself is actually occupied by four countries. It's occupied by Turkey, Iran, Syria, and Iraq. Um, the Kurds in Iraq kind of got their freedom after the Gulf War. Um, they uh, People probably heard about the no-fly zone in the north. That yeah. was over Kurdish territory and so they're relatively independent there and um, then when the civil war happened in Syria the Kurds um, basically seized the territory they were on and um, have been taking territory off of um, ISIS ever since Um, and that they call that um, territory Rojava and um, it's to me it's um, a really interesting political story because Rojava is um, being run according to this um, the the um, philosophy of this sort of famous Kurdish leader. Um, they call him Apo, and he's uh, sitting in a jail on an island in Turkey. Um, the Turks got him. He was sort of um, betrayed by the Americans and captured and sent back to Turkey. Um, but, yeah, his, his philosophy has got a lot of really great stuff, like um, equal rights for women and um, direct democracy. And um, so everybody forms committees and votes on everything. And um, it's sort of, it, it's a little bit um, socialist, anarchist sort of lines, that kind of thing. Mm. And um, the... the um, The only other time that has really happened in modern history was during the Spanish Civil War um, in the 30s. Um, So I've always been very interested in um, Robert Kappa and uh, his girlfriend, who were kind of the first war correspondent photographers. Mm -hmm. And um, they were supporters of the Spanish Republic, which... um, I don't know how much you know about that particular conflict. Very little. <laughs> well, basically, um, the Spanish elected uh, this sort of socialist, anarchist, communist government, mm. and um, <clears throat> the the officer class and the church had a um, invaded basically, um, and you had the, that was was the start of um, the fascists. Right. And um, so they had this Spanish guy, Franco, who was backed by Mussolini and Hitler versus the People's Republic, right? Mm. And, um, you know, it, it was a really amazing 
time and experiment where a lot of people were uh, really quite excited about the the new way of governing things, you know, like all the factories were run by the workers and the profits were shared with the community and all that sort of stuff. It was all very idealistic, you know. Um, but unfortunately, Britain and France refused to back them um, and so they, they eventually were overrun by... It, it was also the first time aircraft were used to bomb civilians, the Germans. Uh, there's that famous Picasso painting, The Bombing of Guernica. Oh, right, yes. Um, yeah, so that, that was the first aerial bombing of civilians. Um, and then uh, they, they did get some backing from Stalin, but he was very choosy and, you know, that uh, I don't know, have, have you read George Orwell? Because um, he, the guy who wrote 1984 and uh, Animal Farm. Uh, I am aware, but no, I haven't read. Yeah, well, he he was one of um, a, a large number of um, foreign fighters that went to join the Republic. Mm. Um, so all these guys, like mostly working class people from all over the world, from America, Australia, England, France, um, just went there to fight for that idea, right? Um, and uh, they, they formed these international brigades and um, supported the, the people. Um, and the, the funny thing is, is that that is also happening in Syria now. So um, in Rojava, they have um, a, a whole battalion of um, foreign volunteers um, including several Australians. Um, and some Australians have been killed over there. I actually met the parents of one guy at um, uh, the Curtis New Year party in Blacktown. They'd come down for that. And um, their son had just um, somehow, you know, he was just an ordinary guy from Queensland and um, he read about it and decided to go and help the Kurds fight for survival um, against ISIS. And I think he ended up stepping on a landmine, unfortunately. Right. Um, but, yeah, there's quite there's heaps of British and Americans and stuff over there. Um, and there's also people that go over to help just with looking after orphan children and setting up hospitals and, I don't know, engineering, all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, there, there's this idealistic... Um, government, which has it's made huge gains. Like the the Kurds were a pretty tribal people, um, and and women weren't exactly um, in a very good position mm. at all. Um, and now they have equal rights. There's in in every court there's a, a woman judge and a male judge. Every committee has a female and a male chairperson. Um, they have their own battalions of female fighters who are, are really, really um, effective and brave and um, the, the ISIS guys hate them because getting killed by a woman is really bad news. It's mm. For um, those guys, it means you don't go to heaven and get all your virgins and everything. Mm. Um, so they, <laughs> they tend to um, not like fighting against the... the Women's battalions are called the YPJ, um, and you, you probably have seen their photos because they're um, 
you know, Western media love pictures of them. Um, so you see them in the paper and stuff all the time. Well, I've seen them. I saw a quick little um, Vice documentary about it. It was a little three-part yeah. on, um, on YouTube and absolutely fascinating, just um, but incredible. And just what you said before about, you know, um, from an ISIS perspective of what it would be, like how bad it would be to be killed by a female. It's it's like the ultimate punishment, I think, Um Probably yeah. a few more people should take uh, take a page out, out of the Kurds book and put more females into the <laughs> into the battle lines. Yeah, well, it's I mean, really on the ground, there there aren't that many people fighting against ISIS. Mm. Um, you've got the Syrian army, like the old government army, mm. they've proven really pretty ineffective, and then you've got this sort of mix of um, rebel groups, which. Our media likes to talk about these moderate groups, but um, if they do exist, they're in extremely small numbers. Um, and then you, you've got Russian and American air cover, but on the ground there's only the Kurds um, that are effectively fighting them. Um, and and it's hard because a lot of they get a lot of support from a lot of rich countries like um, Turkey and Saudi Arabia, um, Qatar uh, are all backing those um, supposedly rebel forces that are trying to overthrow Assad. Um, and so they're quite well armed and well supplied, whereas the Kurds have basically got old AK-47s and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I think... Really, the, the biggest problem for the Kurds is that um, they've always been divided amongst themselves and um, they say that they, they never fight as... I mean, they're a famous um, race of fighters, but they never fight as fiercely as they do as when they're fighting each other, um, which is probably why they don't have a nation of their own. Um, they split along tribal lines and political lines. They have a whole alphabet soup of different political parties. Is that is that sort of just sorry to interrupt? But is that more of where those borders are, those country borders, as it's as how they're currently divided up, or is there divisions even in say the Iraqi area yeah, yeah. within yeah, as okay. well? Um, I mean, there is an element of those borders. So you have a particular political group that's quite um, on the fore. In um, in Turkey, it's the PKK, which mm. um, is actually listed as a terrorist group by America and Australia, even though they've never done a terror attack outside of Turkey and they only attack military targets. Mm. Um, I think we listed them a week after the Turkish president visited, um, so there's obviously some sort of arrangement made. Because um, a lot of the ALP senators and stuff questioned it quite strongly, um, why why we were listing them. Um, then in Iraq, um, the you have the KDP are in power. And that president, I mean, they were democratically elected, but he's stayed on after his term finished, and he's refusing to step down and refusing to have more elections. And so you have a whole other opposition um, in within Iraq. Mm. And um, that the that government in Iraq, they don't particularly get along with the Kurds in Syria. Um, 
Although, I mean, sometimes they cooperate. It's a, it's a real, it's really, um, that, that's probably what has been the hardest thing to untangle and figure out. Um, a lot of the sources that you research are very biased. Um, but, you know, occasionally they do aid each other. Um, but up until very recently, they'd closed the border. So between Syria and Iraq. So the Syrian Kurds couldn't get supplies in to rebuild their cities and stuff, mm. um, which is just disastrous. You know, they're, they're in the middle of fighting a war and um, the Kurds across the border aren't supplying them. Um, and, I mean, when you, when you talk to the ordinary Kurdish people, they all believe in unity and solidarity and stuff, but their leaders, unfortunately... Don't carry that. Yeah. Um, so you know, if, if they would all unite, they would probably have a country by now. Um, but hopefully, they will. Um, uh, it, it's just—it's kind of scary. Like at the moment, America and Russia and France and and us, the Australians, we're all helping the Kurds um, because they're fighting ISIS, and, mm. and so are we. Um, but you sort of wonder what. What will happen once ISIS is defeated? Like um, ISIS is locked up in two. I mean, they've basically got two big cities left: um, Mosul and um, a city in Syria. Um, and those cities are surrounded, um, and then they've got a few outlying villages. Um, so they're really on the back foot, um, and they're getting pounded all the time. But once that's over, what happens to the Kurds, you know? Um, the, the Americans backed the Kurds when they were fighting Saddam and then just dropped them once Saddam was defeated. Um, and, you know, Turkey really is um, a very... Um, they, they really dislike the Kurds a lot. Like they're, um, Unfortunately, it very rarely appears in the media, but right now they're, they're um, having a almost genocidal war against the Kurds within Turkey. Um, mm. A lot of the cities are under curfew. They, they've got tanks surrounding cities that are just bombarding the cities that are full of civilians. Um, and that goes back in history for hundreds of years. They've been... You know, they banned their language, they banned their dances, they banned even the colours of their flag. Um, so, you know, uh, America wants to be friends with Turkey because it has bases there on the Black Sea um, in this sort of Cold War Mark II that they're trying to start with Russia. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's... it's a, terrible quagmire because, you know, you've got um, Turkey actively backing ISIS. Um, they, they've been buying petrol from them and um, supplying them with arms and medicine and stuff, but they're supposed to be our ally. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, and they, they really object to any support the Americans give to the Kurds, even now. Um, so it, it's, it's just a you know, it's a terrible mess, and uh, I think our media always uh, sings from the American songbook, mm, you know, um, and, and so we don't, 
the, the Americans don't particularly want to make a big deal about Turkey's support for ISIS, and so that's kept very low. You actually have to go... I mean, there's plenty of stories out there and stuff, but you really have to go looking for them. Yeah. They're not... You won't see them on the ABC 7 o'clock news, you know? Mm. Um, and, you know, you won't you won't even hear about what's happening to the Kurds in Turkey. Um you, you'll hear when there's a bombing in Istanbul or something, but in what's happening in the east of the country, unless you actually go and look at um, Russian websites or Kurdish websites or Arab websites, you you won't find any information about it. Um, so yeah, that's that's where it's a huge mess, it's, isn't it? I mean, it's it's it's, it's a huge mess, but we're gradually. Um, starting to make head and tail of it and um, we've got a reasonably good understanding of what is happening there now. Um, the question is how to put that into a documentary. Um, like, uh, I can't really sit down and just tell you, tell, put in a documentary what I've just told you. Um, it, it's so complicated and difficult. Um, so I think we might um, touch on some of these things um, and maybe hopefully inspire people to try and find out more by themselves, but we'll probably focus more on the women's rights movement or something like that um, and and just try and do that small story. Um, so we'll, we'll fly into um, a city called Sulaymaniyah, which mm -hmm. is it's basically uh, a city that's controlled pretty much by the opposition. Um, and from there, we hope to go up into the mountains where the um, Turkish PKK group, well, they're not Turkish, they're Kurdish, um, but they operate in Turkey. Mm. They have a lot of bases in the mountains of northern Iraq. Um, so, And it's an amazing place. It's like... It looks like the Swiss Alps, you know. It's mm. green. There's water. Um, it snows, um, and you you can walk in there. And there's these amazing bases they have in the caves and stuff up there. There's like special women's only camps, and there's education camps for the men to bring them up to speed with um, the women's rights movement and stuff. <laughs> um, so we'll we'll try and get up there, and then. Um, hopefully go into Syria um, and and have a look at what's happening in Rojava. Um, of course, you know, the, the, because there's a war going on at the moment, that's all has to, um, has to remain flexible, you know. Um, but we'll try and visit some of the refugee camps and stuff in there. Um, so far, there's there's been, like, that vice doco that you saw and a couple of others like that, but they tend, and I think there was a 60 Minutes with um, that awful Tara Brown. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they went there, but they they inevitably follow the same formula of um, go to the front line, get some shots of people firing guns and, and run around in bulletproof vests saying, you know, look how brave I am. I'm reporting for them on the front line. Yeah. And you basically find out nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, 
I was I, I found a photo essay by a woman. Uh, I think her name is Miriam. Can't remember. Um, she she's born in Iran, operates out of Paris. Um, but she went in and did a photo essay on the women fighters at home. You know, um, doing the hair and looking after the children and cooking and you know just living their ordinary lives. Mm-hmm. And they were on leave, you know. Um, and I found that far more interesting and insightful, you know, like how they, how their fathers feel about their daughters going off to fight and stuff like that. Um, and so I'm hoping to do something similar to that. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, I mean, you'll be able to tell me if I'm on the right track, but I guess where we are in, in our part of the world, and you mentioned it before, we... We definitely sing a, a similar tune to to the US and, and other major Western countries. And yeah. I think where your average Joe who looks at the turns on the TV at night and watches the news and whatever else is on, or even or even flicks through a Facebook feed, just looks at that part of the world and just sees the same thing no matter which area you're looking at. And that's where a lot of a lot of that uh prejudice and that uh the the negativity and the racism and whatnot comes from the ignorance that comes from um you know the average joe so i assume that probably the angle that you're pitching now is is to really put a human element behind it and i think a lot of people that aren't educated in in this area of the world and don't understand it if they had the opportunity to watch something like what you're going to try and do they'd probably be able to got a better chance of connecting to it because they're seeing not just a bunch of guys fighting each other over there. They're going to see another another side to it and a more human a human uh, link that they can yeah, relate to. That, that's what I would hope for. Um, I mean, you, you do have this nice um, cheap hook to get people in, mm. which is that the, the Kurdish women are mostly very beautiful and they're running around with machine guns and that tends to pique people's interest, you know. <laughs> um, but then you actually delve in and and find out what's the story of this woman's life mm. um and you know they they're really quite noble the the women over there like they they just um all their work is for their community you know um mm. and so you know it's it's quite inspiring and hopefully people will feel that um but uh i mean it's not like i'm hoping to make any huge change in the world or anything it's people are always um going to be it's going to be always be hard to cut through um the i mean the the most interesting thing with syria for me is is just the it was the propaganda disaster that happened for the americans um when they were there for months overseeing this um supposed revolution that was happening in Syria, right? And um, they told us they were fighting ISIS there as well, but supporting the moderate rebels. Um, And that went on and on and on. And, um, you know, millions of refugees flooding into Europe. Um, You know, thousands and thousands of people killed, whole cities destroyed, right? Um, And then the Russians arrived and within two days, had ISIS on the run, right? Mm. They, they, ISIS was running huge convoys of petrol tankers up into Turkey. 
And you can't tell me the Americans didn't know about that. Mm. You know, um, they knew all about it. Um, there were bridges on supply lines into the ISIS cities that the Americans hadn't taken out. The Russians just came in and destroyed them all within two days, <laughs> and they wiped out the petrol tankers. And ISIS was screwed. And and then everyone turned around and said, "Hang on, <laughs> why wasn't why hadn't America already done all this?" Mm. Um, and you know the Americans and the British, for that matter, were sort of falling over themselves to try and find fault with Russia. Um, and that was at the time. Do you remember that Russian jet got shot down? Yeah. Um, it was shot down by the Turks. Yeah. It was bombing those petrol tankers that Erdogan, the president of Turkey's son, was um, running the market for. Mm. Um, (laughs) And then I remember at the time I I was quite annoyed. See, I I used to work at at the ABC. I worked in news and current affairs for a long time. And Mm. I I opened up the website and there was this article that said... um, Turkish F-16 shoots down Putin's warplane, <laughs> right? Um, now, you know, that, that headline is so biased. Mm. The, the Turkish aircraft, the F-16, that, that's also a warplane, right? Yeah. But, and, you know, the, the Russian aircraft is not Vladimir Putin's personal property. <laughs> it, it, it's, you know... And no one at the ABC is saying, oh, we must run this line, right? That that journalist has come up with that all by himself. Mm. He's looking for a, a, a good buzz headline to get people clicking and, and talking yeah. about it. Yeah, but he's also, he's been sucked in by this common thread, which is that um, the Russians are the baddies, and the Americans are the goodies, and Turkey is our friends, right? Mm. Um, and you know, I, I really that 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 really disappoints me with the ABC. Mm. Where the the whole point of the ABC is that they're supposed to be independent of that kind of bullshit. Mm. Um, uh, and um, you know, that that that's the whole point of funding them is so that we have an independent news source, which is really important, which just reports the facts, and then we add our own opinions. I don't want my news, um, you know, presented to me with the opinions of some journalist, you know? Absolutely. Obviously not very well thought through in the first place. Mm, That's right. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so after that, the Americans suddenly turned it on and started attacking ISIS as well, right? Um, and, and so they, they've been getting hammered and they're, they're almost defeated now. Um, it, it's like a slow process because they every town they hold, they fill it with um, landmines and stuff. So when you try and come in and take it, you have to slowly defuse all the mines before you can get into the town. And that can take months. Um, but, yeah, it's... What I believe was actually happening was that the Americans were hoping that the ISIS and its allies would overthrow Assad mm. and then they'd move in, Yeah. right? Um, whereas the Russians, Assad is their ally. So they came in and supported him 
um, and they took back Palmyra and, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that story, that there was kind of nothing they could do about um, covering that up, you know. It, it had to come out. Um, and, you know, it, it's... The truth seeps through sometimes. Um, that, like, there was a story just I just read a couple of weeks ago about how the Kurds cut the last supply line from Turkey into this city that's held by ISIS, right? Um, but the article doesn't mention Turkey. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it just says that the Kurds have cut the last supply line from the north mm. or like that, right? <laughs> and you're just like, well... Why do the Kurds have to go in and cut the supply line when the supply line's coming out of Turkey, who are supposed to be our ally? That's right, yeah. It's just crazy. Um, and yet, you know, our media doesn't even want to talk about it. Um, I, think, is, I think half the time, a lot of them don't even want to spend the time to even work out who's doing what over there. It's, it's easier, well, to, easier to blanket the whole area and... And yeah, I think that's assumptions. the factor is just ignorance. Mm. Um, but, you know, it they're supposed to be reasonably intelligent. It, it doesn't mm. take a huge step to sort of go, well, hang on, where are those supplies coming from? Yeah. But who who's supplying this terrorist group that is terrorizing the whole world? Um, you know, whoever's doing that is, is complicit. Um mm you'd think we'd be really down on them, right? Absolutely. Because <laughs> um, it's coming out of Saudi and Qatar and Turkey, it's like, oh, we better not talk about that. It's it's like, um, this, it's like this complex uh, game of chess where everyone's looking three moves ahead to try and make sure that the next move might look like it's obvious, but they're, they're hindering the chances of three moves ahead that's going to be, you know, a, a better victory, like you said before, with you know, the Americans holding off for a bit longer um, yeah, for, yeah. for ISIS and then obviously Russia coming in for, for different reasons to to extinguish the problem. So it's everyone's got a motive and an agenda and it's not to just stop the violence or stop, you know, the, the bad things happening. It, there's there's always a, a greater, no, well that, greater thing. That's, I think that's actually the most worrying thing is that why do they have that agenda? Mm. Like... Um, uh, at the moment, we've got this, um, NATO is having this huge meeting in uh, Warsaw, I think, and they're all planning to beef up their defences um, in the in the newspapers. It says they're defending against a resurgent Russia hmm. <laughs> and the threat of Russia to Europe. And that, that threat, as far as I can see, doesn't exist. Like, um, Russia lost 20 million people defeating Germany in World War Two, They do not want to get involved in a war. They just want to trade. Um, uh, I, I really don't see it. And, and so I don't understand why they are doing this military build-up because that, that just means that the Russians are forced to respond um, by moving their military up to the border. And uh, that, that you know what that could lead to? Absolutely. Um, you know, somebody... Um, either deliberately or accidentally sparks off a war and we're all screwed. Mm. Um, but, you know, what's the agenda? 
is it just because the American economy needs to sell weapons or or what? Um, is it because they want to control global trade? I mean, I really don't know. Um, but they're certainly making a fortune because the Europeans are buying up all this um, military gear to the tune of billions of dollars. Um, so, it's yeah. uh, it's it's pretty crazy, and I, I won't uh, I won't go off on too much of a tangent. But it'd be interesting to see what happens uh, when the when the American elections are, are all all done and dusted, and and who ends up uh, who ends up getting the seat because it's going to be. Um, going to be interesting to see what the next moves are after that. I mean, I'm sure probably overall the same things are going to be happening regardless of who gets in there. But um, I think as far as public perception goes and the influence socially over, I guess, people in the, in the United States and then Western world, uh, you know, it could be a bit worrying if you if you get a Trump in there, especially with the, the types of things that he's swelling in, in the public at the moment. So it's... Yeah, well, uh, interesting, actually. Um, uh, I mean... I think what you've just said is probably right, is that it will just be the status quo continuing no matter who gets in. However, I think that's particularly true if Hillary Clinton wins um, because she, everything that's happening with American foreign policy now, she's the Secretary of State, right? Mm. She's up to her neck in it. Um, and and she, has a, she has a record with Libya and Syria and Turkey and all sorts of... And Ukraine, mm. she backed the, um, the coup in Ukraine. Um, and then you've got Trump, who wants to ban all Muslims from coming to America and just sort of throw away lines that obviously, you know, that I think the, the Saudis own something like $80 billion worth of the American economy. <laughs> I, I, I doubt they're going to tell them they're not allowed to visit. Mm, absolutely. Um, but on the other hand, Trump has actually said he, he's questioned why America is being so aggressive towards Russia. Uh, he, he actually said, why don't we just make a deal with Putin and um, do some business? Um, which is, you know, that's, that's a far more rational thing to do than um, try and start a bloody war with them. Um, so, you know, that... <laughs> For once, he's um, actually saying something good. Um, but who knows? I, I, I'd say your proposal that it would stay exactly the same is probably the right one. Yeah. It's just I think because um, I think when it comes to politics, it's certainly nowhere near my forte, um, and it's definitely from a layman's point of view. But I just I guess looking around where – where we are in the world and we, we always sort of follow behind on the coattails of the U S and whatever the yeah. perceptions are, it filters down here and you see it and in, uh, in and around, uh, you know, your everyday surroundings and people talking in the office place and whatnot. And, um, and it just that divide between, you know, the East and the West just seems, I mean, maybe it's just the, the media is hyping it up more so than what the reality of it is, but it just seems that there's more fear out there and more ignorance than there probably has been for a while, or maybe it's just getting highlighted more. But um, Oh, yeah, I yeah. think it's always, I mean, just <clears throat> look at, uh, say, James Bond movies. Yep. You know, that that they've always, um, Russia's always been the baddies, Um in Hollywood and stuff, and mm. 
it's sort of we belong to this. Our, our tribe is um, Britain, America, Australia, Canada, um, and we're a particular gang that has has run the world for centuries. Um, they're like the scariest people on the planet, really. Mm. Um, and it's just what is normal. You know, when you're chatting with someone in the office, if you start telling them that, you know, actually you think Putin isn't such a bad guy or whatever, they're going to think you're weird and, <laughs> it, you know, it's just not the normal narrative. Yeah. Um, so people tend to try and stick to what to behave as a normal what's perceived as normal, and um, that, that's what we're all sold. Um, which, you know, it, luckily there's always a small percentage of rat bags that question everything. It occasionally leaks out into the general populace's consciousness, um, which is, you know, things like um, gay rights, for example. You know, yeah. I, I still remember when it was considered perfectly acceptable to bash gay people, you know? Mm. Um, it, it was almost wrong not to. Whereas now, the general public would frown on it, mm. you know, uh, except for a few sort of fringe elements. Um, so, you know, progress does happen. Um, we shouldn't totally give up on the human race. Well, I think I definitely see an interesting thing when it comes to social media, especially when there's a big a big headline story, something happening in the world. And, and, um, for good and bad, you, you definitely, everyone's opinion comes out and it can, sometimes it can be quite exhausting reading through like a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed of everyone suddenly being an expert on social, on social and economic issues and whatnot. But, but it's, oh, it's just, I was just going to say, it's interesting to see people with probably that aren't so much educated on it, but just have a bit of, common sense and a bit of intelligence to, to call people out when they're being, you know, yeah. some form of bigotry or ignorance or whatnot. And there's, I think people are more willing to sort of stand up and say something now than probably what it was beforehand. Oh yeah. It's almost um, fashionable <laughs> to go against the status quo now yeah. and how clever you are by debunking whatever the herd is um, chasing after. Mm. So like, um, most recently, the Brexit thing. Mm. Um, all of us social media savvy, um, you know, like sort of middle class yuppie people were all told that Brexit was a terrible thing done by all these racist bogans, you know. <laughs> um, but as always, it's not a black and white story. Mm. You know, there, there's, there's bad on both sides and good on both sides and it's really, really complicated. Um, you know, the, the EU had, be, it, it's true that it had become this huge bureaucracy that wasn't accountable to anyone and was imposing stuff on people that was in the interests of rich bankers, mm. you know, what happened in Greece. Um, but we all just forgot about that and went, oh my God, Britain's left the EU. <laughs> what a bunch of idiots. And it's all because they hate Muslims. Um, when actually, you know, there was... There's a huge element of these extreme left people that wanted to leave the EU, mm. um, as well as all the racist maniacs. Um, but yeah, you, you can you can actually get away with um, challenging things now on Facebook and stuff, and people will actually discuss it with you. 
well, depending on how reasonable your friends are. <laughs> um, a few but, of them are. A few. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I, I'd say some very... I, I've been going to a lot of the Kurdish groups and um, it, it's really funny because you get a lot of... It's very right-wing uh, Donald Trump supporters types from America on there because um, they go on there to hate on ISIS, right? Mm. And and so they and they talk about how Obama is a terrorist, communist, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, that, and then they, they say all this quite sort of vile stuff about Muslims. And the Kurds are Muslims. Mm. <laughs> They're kind of small M Muslims. Um, a lot of them don't particularly care to go to the mosque or whatever, but I'll tell you, they're Muslims and proud of it. Yeah. And, and so to go around talking about sewing people in pig skins and calling them, you know, dogs and stuff, it's actually really insulting to the Kurdish people that these Americans are supposedly supporting. Mm. Um, uh, and then, you know, the, these guys also, they hate socialism. Like, the, the very idea of it is just like, um, it's like Satan, you know. Um, but the Kurdish, the Kurds are all socialists. Mm. Like they're, 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 every one of their military badges has a big bloody red star on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, they, they were, the PKK was a Marxist terror group that was backed by the Soviet Union originally. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, and, you know, they, they still have a lot of their old sort of traditions where they all stand up at the meeting and, you know, make their little speech about the revolution and all that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there's, a great, um, there's a great French documentary um, which focuses mainly on the women. Um, uh, I think it's called Women at War. It's on YouTube. Um, and it's really, it's really well made. But it's it's so French, like our, <laughs> our Western kind of audience, we would just be, when, when we see that sort of stuff, we're like, what is this? It, it doesn't, like, all our TV is made to this particular formula, <laughs> which I got very sick of yep. ticking boxes of mm. for 20 years, you know? Um, whereas the French, they'll, they'll let a shot flow. They'll let somebody talk for five minutes, which is, Absolutely forbidden. Mm. <laughs> like we let someone talk for forty seconds it's because like, you know how, people don't attention. That's it. The attention span. Yeah. How, how would anyone have more than a ten-second attention yeah. span? Yeah. Whereas the French, they kind of respect their audience, and and they make this these poetic statements, which if you play it to an Australian audience, they're just going to go, "You wanker," <laughs> and they'll have these beautiful images projected behind the interview and. Mm. It's art, you know, yeah. um, and and they'll just flow along with whatever they're interested in. I think, you know, I, I really like it um, and I find it really interesting. But if I make stuff like that and I take it to um, the TV stations and try to sell it, they just don't know what to do with it. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, they're trained to recognize the recipe and make sure that you have ticked all those boxes. Mm. And if it doesn't, they know that they're supposed to reject it. Yeah. Um, but that's what I really love about being freelance and independent now is that yeah. I don't care. Absolutely. I can make what I want to make and um, I just go ahead and do that. And um, 
I'll take it to them and say, do you want to buy this? And if they say no, I'll put it on YouTube and there will be a global audience for it. Might only be 10 people or a thousand people or whatever, but it doesn't actually matter. It's, I just want to make my little artwork and stick it out there for whoever wants to look at it. It probably, um, it probably is a lot, uh, well, it's getting a, a lot better now with, you know, things like YouTube and Vimeo and whatnot where, you probably can have the potential to reach a, a larger audience that have the right viewpoint or, or are interested or looking for that type of yeah. information. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a network or whatnot that puts something out, you, yeah, you, you probably, your strike rate's probably not going to be as high. Yeah, well, they'll they'll come and find you. You know, um, yeah. anything you put on the network is is going to be watched by mostly old people. Um, mm-hmm. Is the young people, many of them don't even have TVs. Um, but the other really great thing is that it's become so much cheaper to make stuff. Mm. Um, so we went to China re- recently following um, the primitive calculators um, and um, some Chinese bands, underground Chinese bands traveling around on tour. Mm-hmm. And we just had... Uh, myself and my friend Thomas from Melbourne with um, digital SLRs and a couple of Zoom audio recorders and shot a whole feature-length documentary about the tour. Um, And, you know, that that costs you airfare, accommodation, and that's kind of it. You know, your camera costs a couple of grand, your lens costs a couple of grand, but once you've got it, that's You've it. got it. It's um, your investment. Yeah, and then you, um, you know, everything goes onto cards and onto a hard drive. There's no film, um, and then you edit it on your on your Mac or whatever at home. Um, so you pay for your um, Adobe subscription or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when I was learning to make TV, it would be. A, You'd have a, a cameraman, a sound man, myself, uh, an editor, a sound mix, a colorist, you know, um, all getting paid quite a lot of money. But none of that, you don't need any of that now. You can just go and do it yourself. That's which it. Is- and, and probably back then as well, because you, you're paying everyone, you know, some kind of salary or contract or whatever it might be. You know, and the network that or whoever you're doing it for is paying for it, then they're looking for that return as well. So you've got, there's a lot of pressure to, to produce something that's that's yeah. going to be sometimes it might not even deliver the message that you're really intending to because it's not going to have it's got to have the right well, attention span. Terrible restriction actually because you've been sent out in the field with strict instructions of what to get. Mm. When and and the same applies now um, to getting grants to make docos and films and stuff, right? If you pitch to get a grant, you have to tell them what your story is. So if you if I rock up in um, Kurdistan and I find this amazing, interesting person and I want to follow her story, if I've already pitched that, no, I'm going to go to the refugee camps, I can't just do that. But if I just pay my own airfare and turn up, I can follow the story that presents itself to me, yeah. um, which is, you know, that's really important as a storyteller that you, you follow the story that you're interested in. Um, yeah. No, it's, 
How, how long are you planning to be over there for? Um, well, at the moment, we're looking at about four weeks. Okay. Um, I, I'd prefer to go for longer, <clears throat> but the woman that I work with, she has two quite young children. Mm. So she wants to come back and be with her children, um, naturally. Mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, a month is a long time for the little tackers. Mm. Um and, you know, she's also scared Absolutely. going to a war zone. Um, so, but, yeah, we, we often collaborate on things so we can both shoot and edit and everything. So what's, it's what's important the, to have two people. Yeah, definitely. And, and what, sort of, what sort of preparation do you put in, especially when you go into a war zone? I mean, there's just so much risk there. I mean, probably some myth around particular risks, but there's risk all the same. Is there certain things that you have to do and uh, or particular approaches that you're going to have to take just to try and mitigate mitigate those risks? Well, yeah, it, it depends on what you want to do. Um, if, if you actually want to go to the front line, then you, you have to basically embed yourself with one side of the conflict mm. and hope that they'll look after you. Um, which the Kurds are very good at doing. Um, you can go in 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 um, in Iraq. You can go to the Kirkuk markets and buy yourself a helmet and a bulletproof vest if you want. Um, if you want to invest in that kind of gear. Um, but personally, I, I I'm not really that keen to go anywhere near this shooting. Um, that's not the story I'm chasing mm. and. They're actually the Kurds can supply me with plenty of footage that they have themselves of that stuff. Um, sure. But and you know it's it's quite difficult to shoot under those conditions. So you, you might go up there and not really get anything anyway. Yeah. Um. So I'll just pick from the best of their conflict footage and use that probably. Um. I mean, you need to know first aid and you need to know what sort of uh, food you're going to be eating. Um, you, you can try and get a fixer, like a local guy or woman mm -hmm. who comes with you, um, who's familiar with what's dangerous and what's not mm -hmm. and where you can go and who speaks the local language. Um, and especially if we go into Syria, we'd be very likely to hire someone like that. It's yeah. actually really quite cheap. Um, and then you've, that person is also an interpreter, um, which is, you know, Big extremely help. important <laughs> to be able to communicate with people. Yeah. Um, so, and you usually, they'll, they'll have a car, you'll hire them in their car. Yeah. And um, so that gives you a driver as well. Um, what else? I mean, most of the stuff that we concern ourselves with uh, is um, equipment, you know, like hard drives and how you're going to charge batteries and mm, things, absolutely. depending on where you're going. Um, a friend of mine just went across the Kokoda Trail the other day and um, had to build himself this little charging setup with a solar panel and stuff <laughs> and then lump it over the mountains to charge all his gear. Um, Bit of a MacGyver, MacGyver setup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was very <laughs> proud of it. Half of it was made out of wood. We couldn't believe it. Do you take a photo of it? 
Yeah, of course he oh, did. I have to, I'll have to check it out. <laughs> it's, full on, it's full instructions on his Facebook. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think it might, some of it might have been a bit unnecessary. Yeah, um, okay. There are other ways around these things. Uh, and that guy, the, the photographer, like, he he could just carry batteries um, for us because we're shooting video we chew heaps of power so we we go through the batteries every day mm. um and have to charge them yeah um it's funny because there's sort of things that when especially when you're thinking about going to that part of the world where i guess from the outside looking in it's just filled with so much potential risk there and things like making sure that you've got batteries that can be charged and whatnot it, for for most people would probably think that's the last thing on your list, but it, it's probably one of the most critical things for yeah, for the, for no the reason point. why you're going over there. <laughs> no point if your camera shuts down. That's right. But um, the thing is, what I, I think people forget, because we're used to this particular view of that part of the world, mm. which is just the war, people live there. Yeah. You know, the, there's... Millions of people living their lives day to day. You can go to the shops and buy some fags and get a kebab, you know. It's, um, <laughs> it, you know, it, people live and survive there. Um, and unless you're in a city that's actually being invaded by ISIS, um, you're, um, you're really pretty safe, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you'd be quite unlucky. Like... You've got as much chance of getting stabbed at Bondi by a junkie with a screwdriver. Like it, 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 Sydney's not that safe. <laughs> um, it, Australians are, you know, actually quite dangerous people. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of areas in Sydney where I wouldn't want to walk by myself. That's for sure. Let alone let alone a female or anything as such. And we talk yeah, about well, the Middle East with the the way they treat females. America. You yeah. know, oh, yeah. um, in England where they'll kick you to death if you support the wrong football team, you know? <laughs> That's right. um, yeah. it, it, on a personal level, um, if you're staying in the right areas, you're actually probably quite a lot safer mm. over there. Mm. Um, and the other thing people probably don't realise is that the, the pace of the battle, it, it, they move very slowly, mm. you know? Um, you've got this big open plain and everyone's got machine guns and missiles and bombs and stuff, right? Getting across that territory is this very slow, painstaking process. You don't just go charging across mm. or you'll just get wiped out, you know? Um, they they fight for it foot by foot. Yeah, it's um, it's it's amazing what's perceived through through the general channels and of the media and whatnot and what people perceive. I mean, even for myself, you know, unless I'm out there actively searching for stories and, and documentaries and things that, that depict, you know, the the realities of, of, of you know, everyday life there, then all you're going to see is, is yeah, buildings very, getting blown up. Very few people document that. Yeah. Um, because that's not of interest to that's anyone. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is that, if you're there shooting in, um, say, Kamishli, which is the capital of Rojava the, in northern Syria, if um, by some disaster ISIS was going to overrun that area, it would take them quite a while. You would have enough time to leave. Mm -hmm. um, you would have days yeah. to leave. Um, 
which is what you would do, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, there's still, you know, there's random terror attacks and there's, um, uh, like, mines that haven't been cleared. Mm. Um, you, you can go into an area. You, you do not want to be poking around in the rubble. You don't pick up a phone that you see on the ground or things like that, you know, um, because they'll, they do leave um, explosive devices disguised as um, attractive items that you might want to have a look at, you know, mm, yep, and then okay. you pick it up and boom. So you, you do have to exercise some caution and, and, you know, walk in areas that, you know, there's a lot of traffic and stuff, you know. Yeah, definitely. And what's what's the um, what's the approach with, I guess, with the Australian government going over there? Because, uh, and this is, this is all, you know, media perception, but is it something that you guys get, I mean, I know that you know, for your common touristy traveller, you registered a smart traveller and things like that. Is it something yeah. that you guys would notify the, the government that you're heading to that part of the world? Is there something that they put you on? I mean, I don't know. Do they put you on a list to say, oh, well, these guys are over there? Generally, you would. Yeah. Generally, you would. But if you thought that um, they were going to tip off someone that you didn't want to know that you were going there, mm. then, like, for example, I don't know. Um, say I wanted to go and do a doco in West Papua. Um, I'd be more cautious about telling Australia, right? Because they they uh, okay. the Indonesian troops that are killing people in West Papua, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know, and look what happened to those um, poor um, heroin smugglers. The mm. uh, ASIO tipped off the Indonesian government, knowing that they would get the death penalty mm. instead of picking them up at this end. Yeah. Um, so a little scepticism. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, um, you know, if if you were going over to um, fight for the Kurds, you definitely would not tell them because technically, although no one's ever been charged, that's illegal. Um, even though you're fighting against ISIS, our enemy, um, that, it's totally illegal. Um, the most that will happen to you is you'll get an interview with the cops when you get back and then they'll let you go, but still. Um, yeah, but we're just going there to do our job. Um, yeah. there, there wouldn't be anything wrong with us um, notifying them and letting them know where we were. And, you know, there, there's plenty of Australian forces over there that, you know, I, ideally we'd love to go and talk to them, um, but they're, they're usually pretty reluctant to... <laughs> to talk um, unless it's all been previously sanctioned mm. by their department. No doubt a bit of red tape there. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you might be relying on them to airlift you out or something um, mm. if um, you did get injured or if if the tide of the war changed or something. Um, so there's no reason not to cooperate with them in that regard. Mm. And we're not telling a story that um, is in any way controversial to Australia's interests. So, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely <laughs> going to be interesting to see uh, see what comes of it all. I mean, have you have you been to that part of the world before? I know you've travelled quite a bit over the years. Yeah, well, I've been I've been to Syria. I've been to the Kurdish part of Turkey. Okay. Um, but that was a long time ago. That was before the Gulf War. Right. Um, so, you know, things have changed since yeah. then. Um, but 
I mean, even even just I think we'll come back with uh, at least beautiful photographs, mm. um, and and hopefully lots of nice video that will actually form a coherent story as well. Um, but you know, I think it's worth going even just for the photos. Oh, absolutely. I think there's um, there's plenty of ways to 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 pass pass a particular message back to people, and and um, yeah. I think even from like even myself, as I said before, and I'm, when I was talking to you, I think yesterday or whatnot, like I knew nothing about Kirsten. I did I did a I did a massive uh, data dump of information over the last twenty four hours, trying to yeah. trying to catch oh, up and, and learn what was what was happening. And That's um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting story. Yeah. Uh, like even and there's so many aspects like the religion, yeah. their 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 original religion predates Zoroastrianism, which is the root of all of our sort of um, the Bible, the Quran, the Torah. Um, that that all goes back to these guys. Mm. Um, they invented um, what's it called monotheism, right. the the one God idea. Yeah, um, and a lot of the reason we want to go is just to learn stuff for ourselves mm-hmm. as people and to do something different and adventurous rather Absolutely. than going for a holiday to Bali, you know? Um, <laughs> Don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, life life is short and um, it should be lived to the full. Absolutely. And, you know, you've you got to try and... Expand your mind and do interesting things and go to interesting places and meet people outside your own culture and learn about them because um, they will have stuff to offer you. Um, and, you know, it's it's about um, defeating that ignorance that you talked about. Um, if we all do that on an individual level, the world gets to be a better place. And um, I'll, I'll definitely do my part to... To, to pass this around to plenty of people. I know there's heaps of people that listen to this that would probably be in the same boat as me and, and just, you know, a little bit ignorant to it, but not for not for negative ways, but more of a case of just haven't really yeah, gone, yeah. gone searching for it to really understand. That was I, on. a few yeah. months ago. Yeah. <laughs> very, very little about about them. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it's not so hard to learn. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's quite interesting, even just uh, over the last twenty four hours, just uh, cramming to to learn as much as I can in a short period of time. And and it is quite interesting. And it, I think it just, I mean, it's it's not black and white. And as much as people want it to be black and white, there's so many different shades of grey in there. And this is just another shade altogether that I wasn't aware of. And it's it is interesting to see that, um, you know, there's it's 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 very complex, and there's a lot of different people and different sides and different backgrounds yeah. all trying to find some stability and, and just a few yeah, people so, are stuffing it up. I mean, if you watch, I've watched quite a few Kurdish movies okay. and they're all so sad, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like almost even the comedies are tragic because oh, right. um, their whole history is just this unfolding tragedy. Mm. Um, they also have the misfortune to be sitting on top of all this oil and water. Yeah, right. Okay. Great resources of that area. And mm. so, of course, those countries that are occupying Kurdistan aren't going to let go easily. Um, but, yeah, I really hope that, you know, the, the ideal outcome would be that um, northern Iraq and Syria could get together 
and um, and maybe even make it across Syria to the Mediterranean mm. and have a port on the Mediterranean because that's their other great, great problem is that although they have oil, they can't sell it. Yeah, they can't get it out of there, yeah. They can't get it out, um, which is why the president of the Iraqi Kurds is selling oil to the Turks. Mm. Meanwhile, the Kurds in Turkey and the Kurds in Syria, uh, uh, you know, he, he's ac actively attacking them <laughs> with tanks and bombers and stuff, you know. Um, and, and so you can imagine how divisive that is. Absolutely, but, yeah. Um, you know, the, the Kurds in Iraq, they've got to pay the bills. They, they have to fund their army that is fighting ISIS in Iraq. They're, they're actually fighting to survive. So it, I've actually sat between two old Kurdish guys fighting over this very issue, and it, it gets quite heated, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> can only begin to imagine it's, um, oh, I mean. I just foolishly asked, you know. <laughs> oh, you started it? Yeah, I, I just sitting with them, having a drink, and um, we're drinking tea and at this party, and I said, you know, how come the um, the KDP president is so friendly with Erdogan, you know, like after what he's done to the Kurdish people? <laughs> and I had it explained to me from the uh, differing points of view. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, and both of which I can understand. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not black and white, you know, like, yeah. you know, in the end, they need that money to survive. Absolutely. It, um, that reminded me of a, of a time because uh, I'm originally from Queensland and the stereotypical Queensland life is very much white Australia up <laughs> that way. Mm. And I moved down here about 10 years ago and just instantly got multiculturalized. And there was <laughs> one, there was one time where I really put my foot in it without even knowing. And, um, I met a, met a young guy, oh, barely 20 years old. And, um, I asked, he, I said, oh, where he was from. And now I'm even going to stuff this up, but I'm pretty sure he said he, uh, he said he was Syrian. And right. I thought I said, I thought he said the way that he, he articulated that he was Assyrian. And I said okay. that, and I just saw fire in his eyes Yeah, and I went, oh, the, the, oh, sorry. Uh, there's a difference, <laughs> and then I and then I got lectured about it. Yeah. But, um, but the fury of it, I of of uh, of this uh, education that I got, it went in one ear out the other because I was just that fearful of what was about to come after he finished telling me what was. Yeah. Well, that it's really controversial. Yeah. Like um, that. There's there's the Syrian people still there right now, mm. and um, the Kurds in Rojava are. Uh, welcoming, welcoming them into their community and making sure that they have a prominent role in politics and stuff, you know, mm. that they have a say mm. in the government. Um, one of the great things about the old Assad government was that those minorities were protected from the Sunni majority. Um, <laughs> that, that's why Jews and Christians and stuff survived in Syria for years. And, and the Kurds, for that matter, yeah. um, because Assad himself comes from a minority group. Um, but now, now the the rebels are the Sunni majority that are saying, "Well, this is our country," um, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah. it's it's the the only real hope for those minority groups, like the Assyrians and that is, um, and the Armenians and 
they've got every um, yeah. is that either the Kurds or Assad prevail. Um, otherwise, those guys are screwed. Like, yeah, scary stuff in some ways. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, again, you you wouldn't expect them to understand all the vagaries of our culture either. No, um, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I think what culture we've got, if anything. But um, it's oh uh, yeah, we have a we have our own. We've got our own unique way of of living. That's for sure. But it's um, I mean, I've I've always. Um, like my, my fiance is born and bred in Western Sydney and um, Italian background, but I've, I've sort of spent a lot of time in Western Sydney over the years and have sort of really had my eyes open to just different ways of living, different outlooks, different perspectives and, and attitudes and whatnot. And it's just when I, when I, when I'm exposed to so many different ways of life, I look back on, on my roots and think, oh, we're so plain Jane in, in comparison to everybody else. And when someone talks about something and becomes so passionate and sometimes quite fiery, and then yeah. we're, we're oh. too laid back for our own good sometimes. That lack of that apathy is yeah. kind of our saving grace. Though. It is. <laughs> no, that's why we're such a peaceful country because nobody can actually give a shit to, <laughs> to do get it. off their ass. Start burning police cars, you know. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I grew up on the northern beaches, yeah. Um, and uh, now I live in the uh, in Ashfield. You yeah. know, um, it's like all the working class Chinese people live here. Yeah. Um, and when I go to the northern beaches or to the Shire, uh, um, <laughs> or Queensland for that matter, yeah. I, I almost feel claustrophobic, mm. like. In, within my own white culture. Yeah. Um, I actually don't really like it anymore. Mm. Um, just, I mean, I like, I like the people and stuff and I get along with them fine, but it's not where I want to live anymore. Yeah, it's, it's a, a different... It's a, yeah, it's a completely different way um, that so many other people lived compared to what we do. And sometimes, I mean, just for me, the last 10 years of being here and I mean, I've done a fair bit of traveling through music, but um, just living in Sydney, it's just such a culture shock compared to say living in Brisbane. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's like eating, it's like eating food. You, once your palate opens up to so many different, uh, different tastes and whatnot, then you, when you go back to your original stale food that you have, you sort of go, oh, it's, not as, yeah. it's not as good as what I remember it to be. <laughs> and I've, I've discovered yeah, so many more things. Um, you would have been horrified if anyone had oh, offered you anything else. You absolutely. Know? That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but, you know, uh, the, the world is coming. You know, you, those people can't just sit back and close their eyes forever. Um, it's, we we did a doco up in Queensland about um, coal seam gas mining, mm. um, and those people really had the curtains ripped away. You know, they, these are like farmers and stuff out in the bush, um, and we we went to visit the farmers who'd been impacted by the CSG companies, and they had these beautiful ideas about Australia mm. and the government that was looking after you and that people would obey the law and all these these sort of ideas that we all hold dear about the Australian community. Yeah. Um, that was all just thrown in the bin um, by um, the, the Liberal state government up there. They just totally sold them all down the river as fast as they could. 
but not very much money. You know, they just um, would take very little to like retrospectively change laws um, so that the companies could do this environmental wrecking and stuff that was previously illegal. Mm. Um, and that, that, you know, they'd get caught, you know, riffing, like mining um, gravel because they had to build all these roads. Mm. So they'd just open cut mine all this gravel, which was illegal. Right. Um, and they got caught. And then the state government, they went to see their mate, the mining minister, and he, he changed the law retrospectively to make it legal. Um, you know? <laughs> if only we could all have that luxury. We just uh, do what we want and then go, and go back and, and retrospectively change it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, these there, are like these old school cattle farmers and stuff who suddenly their only friends in the world were these hippies from Byron Bay, the only people that came to support them. <laughs> um, and the Greens Party, yeah, right. which they used to think was like the spawn of Satan. <laughs> and so a lot of them actually told me on camera that they were going to vote for the Greens instead of the Nationals. Yeah, right. Wow. And, um, and it was like about a few months after that doco that um, Campbell Newman got swept from power in that huge landslide. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of it was due to the fact that they had just treated the people with so much contempt, um, and especially the National Party. I mean, you know, <laughs> the Farmers' Party, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and they just sold out to the miners. It was like, it was really depressing, actually, because, you know, you sort of have this idea that Australia has the rule of law and values. <laughs> well, we, de we definitely project it that way, don't we? Yeah, we? yeah. And, and that... All this sort of stuff only happens in those poor, benighted countries to the north, you know? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. But one sniff of cash, <laughs> and they were all just, it was like, you know, the bitchy French or the Scottish land barons or whatever, you know? They were just like, yeah, screw the people, give us that money. And, and it was like a gold rush because they come in, they whack in the mines, they get some money, they sell some stock, and then the mines run the gas wells run dry really quick, mm. right? But by then you've poisoned the fucking water table. Yeah, yeah. And then they leave. That's it. <laughs> this is, you know, Queensland, western and central Queensland, where there is basically no rain. That's it. You know, like there's, they there's all... barely anything to grow anyway. And, yeah. Uh, and then whatever's left is destroyed. Yeah, yeah. they pump water, mm. you know. Um, it, was, it was really um, quite upsetting. Um, we we went to town hall meetings where people drive for hours just to come and meet us, you know, mm. um, in this endless plane, you know. They, they go, oh, I'll meet you at the tree. <laughs> 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 and you drive for two hours and you come to this tree and there's a guy in a ute under it. You know, <laughs> you do that. You do that in Sydney. It's a drug deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the only tree, mate. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was called um, an occupied country. We called it in the end because it was sort of that's how we felt. By the time we got back, we, we felt like Queensland had lost a war or something. You know, like you'd go into the pub, and the, there were no locals anymore, just miners yeah, right. in their glowworm outfits. And, <laughs> 20 white Toyota Hiluxes parked out the front. Um, and, 
you know, anything that wasn't related to mining was just overgrown and falling apart and mm. gone. Incredible. It's really scary. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I really had no idea just how bad it was. I'll, um, I'll definitely have to put a link in there so people can check it out. I haven't seen I've, I noticed that um, when I was doing a bit of stalking, I, I saw that in, in the list of some of the work that you'd done. So I'll put a link because I've, I've just um, tapped away and found it on YouTube. So I'll chuck a link there. So yeah, yeah. It's, and I'll have, um, to, have to check it out. The only thing with that is that, like that thing we were talking about, about the formula, mm. that is made for farmers. Yep. And, and it's meant to show them how to deal with it when the CSG guys show up at your front gate. Sure. And so it, you know, city people, when they watch it, they go, geez, this guy's talking for a long time. <laughs> you know, but the farmers, we'd show it at town halls and stuff, and, and the farmers come up to you and they go, oh, geez, I like how you let him have his say. You know, <laughs> it, it takes them ages to say stuff, yeah, but sometimes yeah. it's really important. Yeah. And there's bloody chooks running around and cockatoos and stuff that sound <laughs> Recording is a nightmare, but they're saying really important stuff, and so we put it in. Um, and you know, again, that 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 doesn't fit the normal formula of TV making. So sometimes people sort of raise their eyebrows at it, yeah. Gla- glaze, <laughs> but, um, glaze over a little bit at it. With yeah, the well, span, yeah. It, it just depends what you're used to. Some people find it really refreshing. Other people just think this isn't normal. You yeah, know, absolutely. it's not. Yes, too. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I'll. I'll. I'm quite curious to, to give it a go. I love documentaries anyway, and I'll. I'll put a link so other people can check it out as well. Mm. But um, the beautiful thing with that one was the music. I. Yeah. I came back and I was going. Oh, I need this very particular music, you know, because it's a very Australian story. It's a, like a road story because mm. we're travelling. We're following a busload of farmers from New South Wales who are about to get hit by CSG, right? Mm. And so they go up to Queensland to find out what happens up there (laughs) and um, are quite horrified when they see it. (laughs) And so I needed this particular music and I I went to see this bloke who I'd borrowed a swag from for the trip because we just took swags in the back of the ute and um, slept out in the bush most of the time. And I took his swag back and he was working on his new album. And he said, oh, you can use this, mate. <laughs> it's just, you know, you, you don't want to say no and you also don't want to say yes in case it doesn't fit, you know, because <laughs> then you've got this awkward conversation. Yeah. But um, I took it home and I played it and I was like, oh, fucking perfect because yeah. it's got this sad Aussie but quite powerful and it's like a little um, indie band from Marrickville, you know? Yeah, right. Wow. So, yeah, listen out for that too. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's mad. Uh, yeah, um, there's quite a few things that you've mentioned here that um, I've seen little references to but I haven't checked out, so I'll, I'll probably end up staying up half the night <laughs> starting to watch some of these things. But, uh, it's it's really fascinating. And, and the one thing that um, that our, our mutual uh, friend uh, sort of highlighted initially, which was sort of the, the initial – trigger to sort of reach out to you i haven't even touched on it and i'd be silly not to make a quick mention towards the end because i'm watching the time as well but i mean you've had quite a bit of history and uh, i'm not going to do the timeline of of your your life <laughs> in media but you've, you've worked for the abc for quite a number of years but you also worked um 
as a part of of the Chaser team. For, yeah, for yeah. Well, that at the ABC. Yeah, at, on the yeah. ABC. Yeah, yeah. Because I know that you also worked for Seven Thirty Report, and I think there's a couple of other things that you did while while you were there over that period of time. But yeah. um, I, I wanted to touch on really quickly because I'm sure there'll be a few people, especially the the Aussies that are listening, the the Americans and 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 uh, people from other parts of the world will probably start to to glaze over and zone out now. But um, the um, you're involved in that that famous motorcade. Uh, uh, what would you call it? The um, the I was going to call it skip. It's not really a, well. It is a skit, but yeah, uh, the yeah. prank that they uh, sure. the chaser guys yeah. did. Um, um, yeah, yeah. That and and actually that particular sketch, I think, was the high point of the chasers' war on everything. Yeah. Um, and it was really hard to hit that high point. <laughs> as high a point as that again afterwards. Um, And I left, I think, at the end of that year, and then I would occasionally just help them with stuff, but I was actually working on um, the new inventors or something the year after. But it kind of went a bit downhill after that and finally died. So it might have been good to actually finish on that high point, I reckon. But... (laughs) Yeah, it, it, that that is a it's a classic story, and 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 I think it it helped in the demise of John Howard that that sketch. You know, um, it was um, this massive summit. Um, I think it was APEC. Yeah, it was APEC. Yeah. Um, and George Bush was visiting, and all these other world leaders, and John Howard was strutting around like a little chook, you know, um, <laughs> and he spent. $40 million on securing the CBD mm. from the terrorists or whatever. But when we, when we actually went into hotels and um, government buildings and stuff the, the, uh, and talked to the ASIO guys and stuff, they'd been handed out pictures of us, <laughs> the chaser and the team, the chaser guys and, and the production team. Yeah. <laughs> that was... Who they were watching out for, these dangerous terrorists, <laughs> dangerous comedians, I mean. That's a good story. Um, for, that's a good story for your mum. I think if you got a proud moment, yeah. that's definitely gonna be a highlight there. <laughs> yeah, and um and yeah, we just you know, that it was a brilliantly executed thing. Um I think um I think Julian Morrow came up with it where they just got a whole motorcade, stuck flags on it, put Osama bin Laden which was Chaz in disguise in the back of one of them, and then drove it straight into the um, green zone. Um, and the ABC lawyers had said to us, all right, you can drive into the green zone until the police stop you, but don't go into the red zone because then you'll get severely prosecuted, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but the police gave us these two maps that had the green zone and the red zone <laughs> but the two maps were different, so yeah. we were never quite sure where the border was. And like the the point of the gag was that they'd drive up to the gate, and the gate they wouldn't let us in, right? Yeah, you know, obviously we're not the Canadian motorcade, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the day before, Howard and the police commissioner came through, and they couldn't find the key for the gate. Oh, and and Howard and that got all cranky at them, and so after that, they didn't lock the gate anymore. <laughs> and the police just waved us through. And and there was, like, so many police that none of them took individual responsibility. Hmm. 
I, one of my mates, he had, he was running next to the cars. He had an ID card with a picture of this huge black rugby player called Wendell Saylor or something. Uh, yeah. I, and he's a tall, skinny, red-headed, white-skinned guy. <laughs> and the cops were looking at his ID. <laughs> Motorcade had stopped for traffic and stuff. Mm. They're looking at it and they're looking at him and they didn't say anything. <laughs> you know, if, if it had been two policemen in a patrol car, they would have shut it down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they just kept waving us through. And um, the boss finally was going, look, we're getting really, that's George Bush's hotel. <laughs> You're getting deep now. Getting really close to the, there were like snipers on the roof, you know. <laughs> um, so we've got to get them to stop us because that's the payoff of the gag, right? Mm, yeah. Um, because then Osama jumps out and, you know, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, but um, they then, so he, he got out and he told the chief copper in the middle of the intersection that he wanted to turn the motorcade around, which is, you know, crazy. Like, why would you do that? And, yeah. and um, but they just stopped all the traffic and started turning the motorcade around. <laughs> and, and all the news networks, they were already onto us. Yeah, like, right. Crews were down filming because they saw us running next to the cars, <laughs> and they knew that motorcades don't do that. Yeah, no one's run next to a motorcade since John F. Kennedy. <laughs> um, and we just did it for you know to make it look cliched, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, and so yeah, they turned us around, and they still didn't stop it. And so they said, "Look, you'll just have to get Osama out." And so they pulled Chaz out in his Osama outfit and there's this beautiful shot of this cop, this boss cop's face and he just goes, oh, it's the fucking chaser. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and then they swooped and arrested everyone. Um, and in those days we still were shooting on tape. Ah, uh, right, yeah. We just got all the, the cops used to like confiscate your tapes and then they'd mysteriously get wiped. Mm. Technically illegal, but, you know. <laughs> so we'd, what we'd do is we'd just, um, as soon as the, the crunch happened, you'd just pop your tape and stick it in your undies and um, put in a blank one, and the cops would confiscate that. Yeah. And um, we just quickly got all the tapes because there was so many cops surrounding us and stuff that they weren't really, no one was in charge. And so we just bundled them up. And um, a couple of us slipped into a taxi and went back to the ABC with them. <laughs> and the rest of our mob got taken down to the jail and put in the cells. <laughs> oh, it was just a fiasco. That's uh. $40 million worth of security. And they, they really, the Attorney General and Howard and that, they wanted to um, really throw the book at them, you know. Um, but luckily... Actually, no, it was the police, the Minister for Police of New South Wales, he wanted to get us, and the Attorney General, who was a smart guy, said, don't do it, mate, they will turn it into a circus and milk it for days <laughs> and weeks <laughs> if we drag them into court, yeah. um, which is exactly what they were planning. Yeah. Um, but, of course, um, they, in the end, they just dropped it, and, uh, and the story went away after a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, it was very powerful political satire, um, which um, unfortunately we don't really have anymore. Because mm. um, 
a lot of, like every day when I was riding home on the bus, the people on the bus were talking about the chaser. <laughs> and and they were saying, you know, I didn't know that the government had done that mm. until I saw it on the chaser. <laughs> and these people are not going to watch the news. Mm. That's it. Yeah. Um, and so it was getting all this important information to this whole huge audience. And, and that audience was then talking about it to their friends. Um, so it was a really powerful thing. Um, it definitely made, um, for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other people, it made politics entertaining. Like people could, yeah. people could digest it. They could understand it because there was a, there was an underlying comedic spin on it yeah. that, that, that was registering with people. And I think that was unfortunately, and fortunately it was, it was probably one of the only ways that can really sort of get people engaged to, to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. It's a shame that <laughs> Australians do love taking the piss out of things. Um, <laughs> And, and I think that's why it worked. And, and yeah, it wasn't that long after that that bloody... the gov- Not only did the Australian population throw out that government, mm. Howard lost his own seat. Like, yeah. the Prime Minister lost his seat to Maxine McHugh, um, <laughs> who was an ABC journo. Um, like, you know, imagine the PM losing his own seat. Yeah. Like, these days they try and portray Howard as this, you know, he was this greatest prime minister ever. He got his ass kicked out of office. <laughs> he, he left in disgrace. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the bloody Iraq war. It's um uh, certainly amazing, what like, the sequence of events around that time and, and I guess where, I think where the country was and where it was about to go into because sort of pretty much after that we've sort of been up and down for... Well, we haven't stopped yet. We're we're still well, in mean, the place. There was a brief sort of surge of optimism when Rudd came in, and mm. um, he got us through the global financial crisis and stuff. But I think since then it's all been pretty downhill and messy and horrible. Mm. Um, you know, like Gillard, she actually did pass a lot of legislation and stuff, but you'd never know it. Like, you never hear about it or anything. No. Um, and then we've had bloody Tony Abbott, <laughs> which, you know, I never thought someone could look worse than John Howard, but <laughs> made John Howard look professional. <laughs> um, it was just like the government was being run by these clowns. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of those clowns are still in power. Mm. Like, the Dutton. Yeah. He he got scraped in one point nine percent or something. This is you know this guy he's a, he's just not very clever. Like he does all these stupid stupid things, and he's the immigration minister. Yeah, it's worrying. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you get what you deserve uh, as a population. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, I think for a lot of people, especially people that probably don't pay a lot of attention or have just blindly voted for one side because their their parents have done it and their grandparents have done it and whatnot. I think that it will just slowly change. But I think at the moment, even after this latest election, a lot of the sort of talk around, well, I guess from a more negative perspective is that, well, it doesn't matter anyway because the government will make their own decisions regardless of, of whoever gets in there. They'll, they'll kick people out and bring people in and, and our vote doesn't matter. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, I mean, down the track. I, I think it, it does matter. Yeah. Uh, like, there, there's huge. Shorten was going to let journos 
into our prison camp mm. on Manus Island and that. So we, we'd actually see what was going on there. Um, they're not allowed in there at the moment, except for I think the only journalist who's ever been in is one of Murdoch's yeah, right. wing column guys. Um, and I, I think really the, the most hopeful thing is that the last election, a third of Australians didn't give their first vote to Labor or Liberal. It went to a minor party. Mm. Um, and if that continues, eventually we'll get more and more diversity instead of the two-party system. Um, and maybe someday we'll get a sophisticated government like they have in Denmark or Finland or wherever, mm. where they have multi-party democracies that negotiate with each other and people have to present rational ideas and facts when they present their policies um, instead of just doing things according to ideology, mm. which it doesn't matter whether it's the left or the right. When you run a government by ideology, it's not a good result. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, rationalism, transparency, <laughs> that's what I want to see. And, there, and I think there's definitely, I mean, it's just going to take, it's going to take a while here because it's definitely I see as a bit of a generational thing and it will take a will take probably another another generation or two to sort of really sort of kick it in the right direction. But as you said before, there are people voting in a more positive and broader direction than than the old two two party two party uh shindig. So it's um it it is going the right direction, but I guess it's just it is difficult when you've got um you know, people in their little pockets and in their own little worlds where, you know, the family have always voted for one. It's like a football team, you know, and yeah. <laughs> my dad's voted for Labor and I'm, I'm going to vote for Labor or same with Liberal, well, whatever it might be. And, the yeah. other optimistic thing is that young people are breaking that mould. Um, yeah. Whenever they poll young people, they, you know, they're well over half of them vote for the Greens. Hmm. Um, so, you know, given a bit of time... <laughs> Some um, older people are going to die off, and um, <laughs> hopefully politics will improve a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, um, hopefully we'll still be around to to see the the glimmers of that as it as it comes through. But uh, yeah, um, hopefully, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's um, that's a good note to end it off. We've been talking for ages. I'm, I'm I've been conscious of the time, so you've been uh, extremely generous. But uh, appreciate it, and we'll have to yeah, do um, a we'll have to do a follow up when. Um, when you get back. All right, Andy, great. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much, Jake. No worries. All right, take care, man. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, another long one, but usually the long ones are the better ones, I think, anyway. Uh, if you want to contact Jake, I'll have links on andysocial.net um, that you can reach out and say hello to him. I really encourage you guys, as I said before, to uh, shoot a message through to, to the people that have taken the time to be a part of uh, the podcast. Uh past and present and uh, I'm sure that they'll really appreciate some uh, some positive feedback uh, where where you do have some um, and Jake's doing some amazing things and uh, there's there's a lot of documentaries that he's been a part of that I've still got to watch yet and uh, it's um, it's great to be able to have an opportunity to speak to someone someone like Jake and um, and yeah hopefully we can do a catch-up when he's when he's back uh, later in the year or early next year, and um, and see how it all went, and and where where uh, where the project uh, is, and what direction it's going, because no doubt uh, he'll be coming back with uh, 
with something that uh, may be slightly different than what he initially was planning. Uh, you never know what uh, what you're going to face when you get over there. So it'll be be very interesting to see what comes of it all. Uh, a bit of housekeeping. I can't even talk today. A bit of housekeeping, I should say, uh, before we wrap up. Um, easiest way to find all of the resources, everything that I talk about is on andysocial.net. Um, however, if you're inclined on a certain social media platform, I have you covered for the most part. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on, I think I've even got a Google Plus account. I haven't really used it though. Um, I've got Tumblr, which I think is pretty useless, but I use it anyway. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on YouTube, of course. Uh, so you can find me on all these different uh, platforms. Shoot me through a message. Say hello. Um, massive way if you want to help out the podcast is get on there, like, share, comment, retweet, whatever the hell else, thumbs up, um, anything that you can do that uh, is uh, interacting with these uh, posts and, and these podcasts and these blogs and all these different things that I'm doing uh, definitely brings more awareness to this podcast and helps me reach out to more people uh, that are doing fantastic things. And um, as as time goes on with this podcast, uh, I'm hoping that um, – that you guys get more and more out of it as, as much as I do. Um, lastly, uh, as mentioned before, I have a blog, which is pretty crap at the moment, but um, I'll be uh, doing as much as I can filming stupid little things and boring moments and then probably more interesting moments as time goes on over the coming months. I've got a fair bit of traveling. I've also got a wedding um, that I'm participating in <laughs> and um and I've been told uh, very sternly to uh, keep the phone in my pocket or in a bag during the wedding itself. So um, probably won't be any vlogging uh, in the midst of me getting married itself, but um, I might try and sneak something in there just between you and me. Um, don't tell Jess, though. Um, so that that's exciting. It's a little bit uh, herky-jerky at the moment, but uh, we'll, it'll get its stripe and momentum uh, further on down the track. Uh, lastly, and I should have mentioned it right at the start of the podcast, I have an Amazon affiliate uh, portal uh, that's on andysocial.net. Uh, all it is, it's an Amazon link that just takes you to Amazon as per normal. But in the URL, there's a little uh, user ID for myself. And what that does is when you shop on Amazon as you would normally do, uh, I get a little bit of a uh, commission or a little bit of a thank you from Amazon for directing people to their website to shop. So you can use that platform, uh, which is on andysocial.net. Um, if you want to be really, really awesome, what you can do is do a right click on that link and save the link and maybe bookmark it. And uh, that, that way you can just click it on your taskbar and not, don't have to worry about going through my website first. But it's always good to go to my website every once in a while. Um, I will be po posting uh, various product direct links to certain things. So books that I read, uh, Kindles, audiobooks, music. Uh, so whenever I have a guest on that's got a product through Amazon, I'm going to try and do direct links to their products. So if you do find something interesting, I would love it if you uh, look to buy it through Amazon first before looking elsewhere. Um, if you can't see any links that I've put up for something, hit me up first um, on either of any or either of whatever platforms I'm on and I'll see if I can find a link for you. But um, the purpose behind setting up this program is to uh, fund the podcast. Um, I've 
um, update, updated and upgraded a lot of my gear, which is still in transit at the moment. Um, and uh, there's a lot of monthly uh, costs that are associated with it. It's not massive money, but it's enough that it, it takes a chunk out of the out of the monthly budget. So, um, you know, it's not something that I'm going to be quitting due to a, a lack of money, but uh, but it'd be great if I can uh, bring in just enough money that it just covers those uh, those monthly costs, and um, that way I can do something that I really love for free without it burning my pocket. But um, yeah, if there's anything that you can do in that way, it'd be absolutely amazing. I'm going to find some other things as well that um, that hopefully will will benefit both of us, win win. Um, we'll see what happens down the track. Anyway, enough rambling. As I'm always known for i'm terribly sorry and if you're still listening i love you very much for uh your attentiveness and we'll speak soon thank you so much cheers you're ready.